in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells a remarkable parable in response to a Jewish expert in the laws who was trying to impress Jesus with his doctrinal knowledge. The, and Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there is this interesting detail in the text that exposes this scholar's self-righteous hypocrisy. After the story ends, in which the Samaritan, it turns out, is the hero, Jesus asked the expert, who was the person who lived out God's definition of a neighbor who loves? The expert's answer was, the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even bring himself to utter the name Samaritan. He had been bragging about his doctrinal knowledge that loving God and loving others is the great commandment, but because for him it was static biblical knowledge, and it was not truth that spoke deeply of redemption, he revealed finally he was a self-righteous hypocrite. When we approach the great story of Scripture as something static and concrete and things to learn and know, without understanding it's really a story of redemption, it's so easy to be like that, isn't it? And here in our story today, right smack in the middle of, of the plaintive anthem of the self-righteous hypocrite, or for those of us brave enough, I call it my plaintive anthem, we have the exact same revelation of this hypocrisy that accompanies all self-righteousness. The older brother says, oh, did I go too far? Have I gone too fast? Oh, here it is, my plaintive anthem. I didn't need to go farther. The older brother says, this son of yours. He can't even call him his brother. So here's a searching question. How does our own self-righteousness determine how we treat others? Self-righteousness is the gateway. It's like a gateway drug to all these things we're addicted to, to all sorts of brokenness, hatred, jealousy, animosity, anger, Resentment, self-centeredness, meanness, self-satisfaction, exclusivity. And most dangerous of all, it is the gateway to self-deception that is born in pride. I think this is why we find in Scripture that God hates pride so much. There are six things the Lord hates, seven, that are detestable to him, pride. It deceives man into doing all sorts of evil. And worse, it's the one thing that keeps man from following Jesus Christ. That keeps us from following Jesus Christ. That has allowed appeasement theology to fill the Christian faith, even though the Christian faith is the only faith that's about grace. Spurgeon said it this way. The greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. And that's what appeasement theology is. But here's the thing. Last week we started to look at this plaintive anthem. 
And today we're going to finish the second half. And last week was tough. Well, it's tough for me anyway, because this is really like looking in a mirror. But here's the thing, like I said at the beginning of church today, for those that were able, that were here, um, I want to repeat it. At the end of the day, this entire appeasement theology, this entire self-righteousness, is really because we're all afraid God doesn't love us. That's all. The great myth is that God doesn't love us. And listen, whether people are religious or not, whether people even believe in a, a God as, as the more traditional religions think of a God, we all have gods. And we're all trying to appease that God that will give us life. Because we don't believe we're loved just for who we are. It's the great lie we all function under. And so we're about to look at the second half of this, and this is searching. It was a, it's going to be even more searching than last week. I'm going to offend everyone because I'm about to offend myself in what I say. But I want to encourage you to be courageous. Look in this mirror. Because here's, at the end of the day, when you see yourself in this mirror of this older son, it's not that you're a bad person. It's you don't know you're loved. When you don't know you're loved, you can't love others. And you spend your time trying to appease God, and you don't have to. So, let's get courageous, come along with me, and let's finish up this plaintive anthem. Who has squandered your property with prostitutes. So, the parentheses there is what the original language would say, you're a living. Now, before we get to the accusation itself, we'll get there in a second, okay? First, let's consider this definition of the money the younger brother wasted. All right, when he says here, you're living. So he's accusing the younger brother of wasting the father's money. Really? Whose money did the younger son waste? His own. The father gave it to him. Just as the father gave the older son the rest of his estate. <coughs> And then this part about your living. Isn't that interesting? Your living, Father. Your living. So what is the theme we find throughout Christ's public life? Both in his stories and in his actions. In fact, we find it from Genesis to Revelation. Through death comes life. Right? The last are first. The least are great. The servant is master. The dead are raised again. This is the biblical story. This is what Dave was talking about in that beautiful worship set we had. We have a singular hope in its resurrection. Right? But it comes through death. And this parable resounds with that theme. I mentioned this, I think, in the second or third week, but here I'm bringing it back. The father died to himself at the beginning of the story by handing out his estate. He gave up everything that, that identified his life, right? So he died to himself there. And we saw in that culture, just asking for your inheritance before your father was dead is asking your father to die. That's what that was. That was saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Then he died again in the middle of the story when he gave up everything to run through the village squares to find his younger son. Okay? Then he killed the fatted calf for emphasis on this whole death thing. And I, I explain why I believe that's the Christ figure in this story. Then he dies to himself again when he humiliated himself in front of all his guests by coming out to the older son and trying to bring him back and find him too. Okay? So this whole thing is about death. 
And yet the older son will have none of this death. None of it. He doesn't want it. That's why he says, Dad, he's wasting your living. He reveals that he's not into the biblical narrative of life out of death. And sadly, death is always the great stumbling block to faith in Jesus, isn't it? Even for us in church, it's the great stumbling block. Like, what do you mean, death? Why do we have to pick up our cross? Because life comes out of death. And the beauty is we really don't have to pick up our cross. We just live in a world of crosses. So we're we're dealing with crosses whether we want to or not. So why not embrace them and, and find resurrection on the other side? All right, let's continue. So then he says, with prostitutes. This is the best part, okay? Now, I've talked about this at the beginning, remember? And we examined how the younger brother might have wasted his money, and the scholarship suggested, and I believe it, it was certainly not with harlots. In fact, it was what we have, a lot of translations are called, you know, with prodigal living or wasteful living. It was probably generosity is what the original words mean, and he was probably trying to gain friends and influence by throwing his money around. Okay? So, I believe this is a grand false accusation. I want you to think about this. He comes in from the fields, and he doesn't even know his brother's home, right? So he asks, hey, what's going on? Well, your brother's come home. So he didn't even know his brother was home, number one. And he obviously didn't know his brother had been working with pigs in the far country, or that would have been the accusation. That right there would have been enough to get his brother in a whole bunch of trouble, right? So he didn't know that or he would have brought up the truth. So instead, he makes this up because there's no way the older brother knows anything that the younger brother was doing in the far country. So why would he make this particular thing up? Well, let's go to our Middle Eastern expert, Bailey. He has some keen insight into what this accusation is all about. So we read this in Nehemiah. Must we hear now that you two are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Can you imagine sleeping with foreign women who we weren't marrying? Imagine sleeping with their prostitutes? This is an absolutely brilliant accusation by the older brother. I'm going to let Bailey explain why. Villagers from Spain to Iraq have for centuries killed each other over such accusations. The older brother knows that the celebration will seal reconciliation between the prodigal and the community. The father has already covered the prodigal with peace. The father wants peace to also govern the relations between the prodigal and the community. That is precisely why the prodigal is dressed in the father's finest robe and wearing a signet ring of the house. For the sake of the father, the community will accept the prodigal whom otherwise they would despise. This is why the older brother is screaming. He wants to destroy the purpose of the celebration. Rather than peace between the prodigal and the community, he wants permanent and uncompromising rejection. Deuteronomy commands that a rebellious son be stoned. The older son may be trying to define the prodigal in these terms to destroy him. The parable allows the audience an objective view of themselves. Jesus offers a brilliant analysis of how a self-righteous spirit can dominate and poison any person. Wow. Wow. Ibn al-Tayyib, the ancient Middle Eastern scholar that I use a lot, comments on the older son's accusation this way. 
This is language of scorn and degradation. Because he, the older brother, is unwilling to humble himself and call him my brother, he intensifies his scorn and says, who devoured your living with harlots. The older son intends by these words to cause his brother to be hated in the eyes of the father, even though the prodigal has repented and received forgiveness. The older son has no right to be angry. But that is exactly what self-righteousness does. It causes us to get all worked up about things that we shouldn't. Honest, it does. And you know, I, I probably shouldn't even be using, I, when I use self-righteousness, I'm using it in the way we often define righteousness as holiness or some moral thing. Remember, righteousness in scripture is about relationship. I, I'm using it in, in the way we have perverted the word righteousness. So I, maybe I should be saying holiness, self-holiness. But here's the thing, when you think about it, why do we judge others? And we all do. Maybe we're getting better at keeping it inside. But we all judge others. Some of us are probably still very vocal about it. I think it's this fear that we're not loved. And because that's classic, right? Fear is fear creates defense mechanisms. And we break into this judging of others. Now, here's the thing, I want to be clear. I'm not judging about, I'm not talking about judging those who are actively hurting others. That's not what I'm talking about. I, I think as followers of Christ, championing the cause of the oppressed and marginalized and speaking out against the oppressor is a substantial part of our calling as followers of Christ. But remember, even in that, that can lead to its own self-holiness, right? Because God doesn't hate the oppressor. We end up hating the oppressor. God loves both the oppressor and the oppressed. But God doesn't, does not condone or tolerate oppression. Right? But what I'm talking about, self-holiness doesn't really concern itself like with, with those big things. Self-holiness concerns itself with personal sins that hurt no one except the person involved. How many of us have been in communities and, and maybe even still in our own lives that we just get so worked up about what is going on in other people's lives. And we start judging and this, and they can't do that, and they can't be part of this communion. You can't go to church. And I, Why does that happen? <clears throat> Don't get me wrong. If we really love someone, and in their lives, they are doing things that is hurting them, and let's be honest, sin destroys. That's why God doesn't like it doesn't offend him. He just doesn't like it because it kills the people he loves. So if we love someone that we know is involved in, in something that's destroying them, we're going to get involved. But we're not going to stand back and judge and talk about them. We're going to get to know them and build a relationship and come alongside with them and sit down and say, hey, what's so broken that's causing me to live like this? How can I help? How can I help you know your love so much you don't have to live like this? Most of the time, they'll reject it. But so what? We don't have to reject them. God doesn't reject them. God just keeps praying that we'll keep doing our job of loving them and helping them over it instead of resort to just pointing fingers. 
So here I am, I'm about to fend myself and everybody else. Because we do this especially with bedroom sins. Keeping it family, PG to some little. <laughs> but let me be clear because of the environment we're in right now, when I say bedroom sins, I am not talking about abuse and rape and any of that. That is not sexual sin. That is something far more grotesque. I'm talking about all these things that you know in your own mind what you condemn and what you judge. Well, isn't it interesting that even 2,000 years ago, Jesus put in the mouth of this self-righteous hypocrite judgment against bedroom sins? Isn't that fascinating? I think maybe Jesus was trying to tell us something. And maybe we missed. It's amazing how silent Jesus is on a lot of other bedroom sins, isn't it? So the question is, what causes us to get all worked up about these things? What causes us to become this older brother and throw these accusations around? Or even if it's true, be so harsh about this stuff. I know people, many people, and I used to be one of these 20 years ago in my Christianity. I know people who get more worked up over what people do in their bedrooms than they do about the fact that there's genocide going on in Sudan, there's famine in Somalia, bombs are being dropped on innocent people all over the world, there are so many assault weapons in this country, eight-year-olds are getting shot in elementary school, music lovers are getting slaughtered at concerts, and people worshiping God are being killed in church. Consider this. I can guarantee you that what my neighbors do in their bedroom will never, ever hurt my world. And the only thing that destroys the sanctity of my marriage with my wife is my own self-righteousness and unwilling to forgive her and understand her and love her the way God wants me to. But isn't that the rub? When we're spending our time judging and condemning others, we don't have time to think about our own sins. And so while we rage against all these things, our own marriages are in a world of mess and hurt because we're so worried about what other people are doing in their homes than what we should be doing in Oh my gosh, I hate this scripture. See why I'm always talking about how much God loves us. When we lose sight of how much we are loved, it just changes everything. But when we know we're loved, we can't be afraid. And so we don't have to get like that. We can be like Jesus Christ. Remember how this whole parable started? The sinners and tax collectors were with Jesus. And oh, did that get people all riled up. Oh boy. And how much does it get our feathers riled up when certain people are in our churches? What? The older son is so busy pointing the finger at his brother 
He cannot even see that he is continuing to destroy relationships. <coughs> Think about this. He will not be reconciled to the brother, and that is destroying his relationship with the father. And we should be very careful here. When we reject fellowship with someone, when we refuse to be reconciled to someone, and I want to qualify that, reconciliation is a two-way street. And I am not talking about getting and maintaining relationships with people that continue to hurt us. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when we refuse to even be open to reconciliation, when we refuse to think and move towards forgiveness. We are damaging our relationship with God. And Jesus said that. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. That's not imperative, that's indicative. That Jesus was saying, if you don't believe in forgiveness, how can you receive forgiveness? So Jesus is inviting us to this beautiful way of living forgiveness. And when we're not, we're damaging not only our relationship with each other, we're damaging our relationship with God. And I think this is exactly what Jesus was teaching in the Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer I wish that was brought back to more evangelical churches and more Protestant churches. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. And we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us. It's about us. It's not about me. The individualism of America, that can be argued by sociologists and, and others that do that stuff, but I don't think it has helped in Christianity. Christianity is about you or me, it's about us. Us. Relationship with each other is essential to relationship with God. <laughs> this is why Dave and I talk about this sometimes. It would be great to be a monk, but in the end, I don't know if it would be. I don't think you can have a relationship with God if you're not in relationship with others. And, I, and, and vice versa. And this is what the older brother fails to understand. As he rejects the brother, he rejects the father too. You killed the fatted calf for him. So here's the complete blindness that his holiness, his self-holiness has led him to. This party was called to celebrate the finding of the younger son. This was not called to celebrate the younger son himself or his sin, as the older brother assumes. It wasn't. It was who did the finding? The father. The party is to honor the father in his love and his grace and his forgiveness. He is at the center of attention. The presence of the younger son at this party only serves to magnify the amazing grace of the father. Just as our presence as sinners at this table and, more importantly, our presence at the feast of the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world at the end of time will only magnify the amazing grace of God. It's not about us, the banquet. When I was a kid and we'd sing Amazing Grace and we've been there 10,000 years, we've no less days to sing God's praise, that used to bum me out. What? That's all we're going to do? And the older I get, I, angels who don't even get grace can't help but fall on their face continuously before this God who died. We get grace. That's all it's going to be. We're not going to want to do anything else.
But of course, if we don't know he loves us, grace is exactly what self-holy hypocrites hate. Because grace has nothing to do with our holiness. And we can't handle that. We want our efforts to count for something. We need to know our moral living counts for something. We need to get paid fairly for our hard works. This son wanted to be recognized for his obedience. And as Bailey says, his choice is law and his concern rewards. But it has never been about the law. It has always been about relationship. Relationship with the father and the brother. And it is the same for us. The law does one thing. It reveals how violently we destroy relationship. God is interested in restored relationship with him and with each other. And that restored relationship is possible because he died, not because of anything we do or don't. But it's so hard to turn from it, isn't it? So I want us all to know how loved we are by God. I mean, consider this very parable we've been studying for 10 weeks. By the way, we're ending next week, so I hope you can make next week. It's the last one. But we even call it by a name that reveals our own self-interest. The parable of the prodigal son, right? And even for those of us who, like myself, claim to get, it's about both sons being lost. I call it the parable of lost sons, but that's not even right. Shay reminds me all the time, this story is not about the sons at all. It's about the father and his amazing love. And indeed, the whole universe is not about our holiness or lack thereof. It's all about God and his amazing grace. Try to let this song help you understand.